Welcome to the Everyday Innovator Podcast for product managers and innovators. Your host is Chad McAllister, helping product managers become product masters. Listen and get ready to take your career to the next level for the doctor is in. Hi, this is Chad, and this is where you make your move from product manager to product master. Back in episode 110, we learned about First Build, the innovation lab of GE Appliance. It allows them to test ideas and solve problems that would be considered too small or risky by GE Appliance. They have built a platform that is fueled by an open community of consumers and problem solvers. Now, what would happen if that capability was used by other companies to tackle any type of product concept? That's what Taylor Dawson is discovering. When I talked with him in episode 110, he was the product evangelist for First Build. Now he's the CEO of Giddy, who is providing a First Build capability to any large company. That's like being able to create a successful innovation lab overnight without actually building one. This also means that Giddy will be deepening and rapidly increasing their own learning that started at First Build. That makes them the leader for the rest of us to learn from. And specifically in this discussion, you'll discover why it's important but almost impossible for large organizations to innovate like a startup, the advantages of an open innovation lab, what makes the first build innovation lab a success, which really means what are the ideas to help your organization and you be more innovative, and the benefits of leveraging Giddy for increasing product success. You'll find the written summary of our discussion at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 161. Now, before we get to the discussion, I want to tell you about a resource I created for you the top 10 tools and insights from the first 100 plus interviews. It's like the cliff notes for some of the most important discussions I've had about product management over the last three years on this podcast. If you're joining me on this path from product manager to product master, you should have this guide. And if you haven't checked it out yet, you'll find it at the same place where you find all the interviews. And that's the everydayinnovator.com. Enjoy the discussion with Taylor. Taylor, thanks for joining the Everyday Innovator podcast once again. I'm really happy to be here, Chad. I want to give a little history here. So we met because you were the product evangelist at First Build, which we talked about back in episode 110. And uh, you were coming back to tell us about something new that you're doing, uh, building on those experiences. Just first for context, share what First Build is and why General Electric Appliance decided to create this thing. Yeah, about uh, it was actually 2014. And we were operating against the backdrop of a whole bunch of uh, us were interested in how to do innovation more like a startup. Mm-hmm. And yet we were, and we'd done a, a bunch of different things. So uh, a bunch of us, including executive team, all read this book, The Lean Startup. And so we decided to bring some of those principles into the business, tr- created a, an internal initiative called FastWorks. It's pretty well-documented GE corporate initiative. Um, ended up trying a whole bunch of different things and having somewhat lackluster results in trying to bring principles of lean startup into the business. So we've got all these ideas for new products and uh, new services that we want to offer. We, we encountered a bunch of resistance in trying to get it done. And so what we did was we set up what we call a micro factory. Uh, it's basically a place where we could build one to a thousand of anything that we could possibly imagine. Uh, in the appliance space, and a new brand called First Build that would give us a significant amount of independence from the GE brand that will allow us to do a lot more in the retail environment. And then we created, established a mission of open innovation. 
So he said this micro factory is now becoming a co-creation workspace for anyone in the community at large. Anyone who can get there can work with us and see everything that we're doing. And we established a web platform, firstbuild.com, where anyone could um, give us an idea or participate in a design challenge that would ultimately become a real product. And then we said, if you're participating in these, there's a certain amount of compensation that you should get for them. So we established an entirely new, what we like to think of a playbook for product innovation hmm. that was dramatically different than anything that's been done in other industries. And um, then we, we started launching products. So our goal was to launch 12 products a year. And for the most part, we kept, we've kept that up. Um, 12 products can be a, a breakneck pace. But when you do that, what you need to say, okay, I can't spend too much time on any one project. So our goal was to get products from mind to market in three months or less. Um, so when, when that became our goal, we said, okay, we've got to figure out how we're going to get these products into the marketplace. So crowdfunding became a huge piece of that because crowdfunding allows you to get basically a prototype that is high fidelity and uh, a marketing spec, a features and benefits page and a video and put it out in front of the world. And so we used, uh, we crowdfunded several products. I think to date we've crowdfunded five different products and all the other products that we create go on our e-commerce platform or mm -hmm. go direct to some of uh, GE Appliances channel partners. Um, but what we've done is we've established a pretty good reputation for being able to get innovative products into the market really quickly, find out where the value is, um, support those that are growing, and then get rid of the ones that aren't really making any progress. It's a really important story and a great story. There's so many of these innovation incubators, labs that have popped up, companies wanting to act more like a startup and trying to figure out some way to do that. And they, they haven't delivered on the results. Kind of like your, your first story when you talked about FastWorks, I'm sure there was a lot of energy around that and the hope that this was going to make things different. And it didn't result in, in what you really wanted it to do. And that came the next thing, which was this micro factory. And that's how I got connected with you, right? Because I saw Opal, the nugget ice maker. You've built a lot of desktop kind of appliance, uh, countertop kind of appliances. And the nugget was a very interesting one for making nugget ice. And I backed that when it was on the crowdfunding platform. And then most recently, I have now a, uh, is it Paragon? Paragon induction cooktop, yeah. Paragon induction cooktop from you, which was meant to be a Christmas present for my wife because she was talking about the kind of cooking, and I don't remember what this is called, a sous, sous vide? Sous vide cooking, for those who haven't heard of it, is a, it's actually a pretty old technique. I think it was invented in the 1800s. So for the engineers in the audience, um, the whole concept is basically around equilibrium. So you get a pot of water, you set it to a certain temperature. In this case of like a medium rare steak, you would actually set the pot so that the water gets to about 132 degrees Fahrenheit. And then you put the meat inside a bag, you submerge the bag in the water, you have a feedback control system that maintains that water bath at 132 degrees Fahrenheit. And within about an hour to two hours, you've brought the entire piece of food up to that equilibrium temperature, making sure that every molecule of that steak is precisely at the desired temperature of 132 degrees Fahrenheit. So it's basically um, great cooking for a way for people who have zero experience to make a perfect steak the first time they do it. Yeah. And, and devices for this, when, when you talk to chefs that do this, are really expensive. And then you guys came up with the Paragon induction cook plate that gives you a way to precisely control the water temperature and at a really much more economical way of attaining this. Right. And I think the interesting thing was there, there were actually some other competitive devices about the same price point 
uh, as ours was in the marketplace uh, already. What we decided to do was G Appliances, since we were a G Appliances incubator, G Appliances isn't necessarily interested in a certain class of those devices, immersion circulators. But what they were interested in is how do we make it easier for people to cook on the type of cooktops that G Appliances has out in the marketplace? Uh-huh. G Appliances has a broad range of Wi-Fi and Bluetooth connected countertop, uh, sorry, um, cooktops out there in the world, whether they be part of a range or whether they be a built-in cooktop. And so what we said is what we really want is the technology that allows you to control temperature on a cooktop. And that's why we put it in the form factor of a cooktop. Since that time, uh, we've had a significant amount of success taking the technology that was created at first build, bringing it into the G appliances fold. And then whether we have the Paragon, for example, has a, a Bluetooth uh, accessory that maintains that helps you maintain cooktop temperature uh we since then released actually a mat that you put on the surface of the cooktop you can throw a pan on top and you can measure your pan temperature and now uh we are looking at any any possible way that we can get to the ability which is the holy grail the ability for a cooktop to wirelessly communicate with a pan uh, or, or whether it's wirelessly or through a direct sensor connection so that you will be able to know precisely what temperature everything that your every instrument in your kitchen is so that you'll avoid, um, overcooking your pancakes or mm-hmm. be able to make a perfect crepe every time, or you'll be able to get a perfect skin on a piece of, uh, uh, salmon that you're, that you're putting in, a, in your pan. We started out with kind of this one thing around sous vide. And what we found is there's a huge value proposition around this temperature control. I think you'll be seeing a lot of, you're already seeing competitive devices coming around it, but I think you'll be seeing a lot of interesting stuff happen around precision temperature controlled cooking. And a a huge amount of that was really started with the vision that we had with the Paragon cooktop at first. And so much of innovation is that way, that we're not really sure what will be successful in the marketplace at times without doing a, a fair bit of market research. And even then, sometimes we get that wrong. And this crowdfunding approach to, on kind of a small scale, test ideas out and see what people are interested in is such a winning combination. And I'm curious, just on your perspective of what really has made First Build work so well, you know, what, what have you learned out of that experience that were kind of the key elements? I think a lot of it is, frankly, the, um, some of the intangible stuff. So we can tell you what a microfactory space uh, should look like and what you should build. But fundamentally, that microfactory, the, the tools in it are not that much different than um, anyone could put in a, an engineering lab or a, a workshop. Mm-hmm. Um, we can talk about doing open innovation. Um, open innovation has been done for a long time. I think what we really learned was the values that kind of undergird the reason why we did that are the important piece of it. And so there's a couple of values that I think are really important. Number one, um, confidentiality is so there's really three things that you look at with the way companies do things. Number one, they operate in R and D labs and in, in, in the innovation space, they're typically very confidential. Uh, they believe that the ideas that they have should be protected. Um, and to a certain extent, I think they're right. Um, another thing that we see is most companies, particularly large companies only go after what they consider to be the big opportunities. And the big opportunities are quite often those that have been tested out. The ones where we, they see like there's a huge slice of the market that we can capture. Um, and the final thing is there's kind of a, this practice within companies of, um, going through this churn process of deciding according to some financial standards, which products 
are the best opportunities. Mm-hmm. So in every every well-run company, there's a process for deciding um, which project should be funded and which project shouldn't be funded. And usually that's done by an ROI calculation or a net present value calculation. Um, and I think the thing I'd like to stress before going forward and saying what first build does different that works is to say that those three things are the fundamental things, kind of the uh, the golden rule for how to run a company effectively and operate a company effectively. Those are actually the right things to do to make sure that your company is successful. And it gets to the crux of what Clayton Christensen, Clayton Christensen talks about in The Innovator's Dilemma, which is the very principles that help our companies be successful and continue to operate are also the principles that keep us from doing innovation mm-hmm. well. And so what we did at First World was say, we're going to continue doing all the stuff that we do. 95% of everything G Appliances does operates according to the playbook that they have been using forever. There's 5% of the projects that they take on happen at First Build with a group of 20 marketers and engineers. Mm-hmm. And those we got an entirely different playbook for. Those ones, instead of being confidential, we actually open them up to the public. So anyone at any time can come and see what we're working on. The reason why we do that is because great ideas die in the dark. And what we found is uh, if you have these ideas where you don't know what the value of them is, usually those ones that don't get funded are the ones where no one can actually appraise the value of it. There's no sense in keeping them quiet because all that happens is they start to pile up over time. Mm -hmm. And you you can't get an accurate appraisal until you get them out into the world. If they could be appraised, like there's a very small number of people in the world who I think are, are insightful enough to just absolutely know that their, that idea they've got is going to be valuable. And we really learned that from the startup world, you know, startups for a long time. I think there was an idea that startups should operate as um, they should operate in stealth mode. And the lean startup basically said, stop doing the stealth mode thing, get out of the building, learn everything that you can. And the second, so the second principle of that, that a lot of companies have is you got to go after the big markets. What we said at first build was we're actually not interested in going after the big markets. We'll let GE appliances do that. We're actually going to go after stuff that's innovator of early adopter products. So sous vide is a good example. It's a small market, but it represented a huge potential opportunity, particularly when you think about the connectivity that happens through, through cell phones and the connectivity that can happen with the internet of things devices. Um, some of the things that some of the ways that people used to interact with devices were were inconceivable in the past and now will become mainstream but they weren't mainstream yet back in 2014 when we were launching the product right. so it really goes after those early opportunities where we can conceivably actually make a, a reasonable profit on the first thousand or ten thousand units but really what we're looking for is to grow with the market so we can be we, we can have a good understanding of what the market needs when the opportunity for the mass market, whether early majority or late majority product comes up. And so we've been able to see first build be a leader in technology that's allowed then G appliances to come back and say, OK, we see now what first build's doing. We see some value. We're going to be prepared for when the, ma- the mass market is ready for it. And I think you're seeing that with ice. You're seeing it with um, pizza. You're seeing it with. Uh, you're seeing it with what we're doing with uh, the temperature controlled cooking. The market's still, those are still kind of early adopter things, but we're quickly making a new reality where they will be early majority, late majority type of products. And then I think the last thing is we found that the financial planning process that, that products go through still a really important process. 
but it doesn't work for these products where there hasn't been an accurate appraisal of the value. And so what we do is we say, you know what, we're not going to spend a lot of money on these projects. Uh, we're, we're going to start with something simple like a crowdfunding campaign. So it may only cost $25,000 to get a product off the ground through a crowdfunding campaign because really you're looking at a prototype, a video, um, and you know a marketing campaign, maybe a, a quick Facebook digital campaign or something like that to get to the point of launching the crowdfunding campaign. You find out if there's interest in it. If there's not interest, then you don't go any further. And we've had both, we've had both kinds. Most of the projects that launch at first build are failures. That is by design. That is the way that it's supposed to be. In my experience, you're going to have about 20% of the ideas that you think are great ideas that have potential that actually can make an impact in the marketplace. So by, by adopting a new playbook for this different class of problems, the one where there's just a whole bunch of stuff that's unknown about it, we've been able to figure out how to do pretty, make some pretty significant innovation with very limited resources. What a breath of fresh air for product managers listening, you know, people that love developing products. If they had this sort of environment where they would get to do what they actually want to do, right? Build new products and, and see where they, they take shape in the marketplace. A word of warning to the product managers out there. I think this flies in the face of everything that you've, you've kind of the, the skill set that you've developed. Mm. Um, that's okay, right? So one of the things that I've learned over the past four years is that intelligent people disagree. Intelligent people must disagree about things. If they didn't, then there wouldn't be, we, there would be no progress. And I think it's very, very counter. What we were doing at first build is very countercultural. It probably makes you feel a little bit uncomfortable and it probably should. Um, but that's okay. We're not saying that this applies to everything. We're mm -hmm. saying that it applies to a certain class of problems. And we found a pretty good solution for that class of problems. Yeah. And this gives a way for larger companies to go after ideas that they would, would otherwise not touch because they, none of them would be big enough to move the needle in any meaningful way of what the business is about. Um, yeah. But indeed, this is a way to feed in the learnings into those mainstream products that they are involved in over time. We'll get back to the discussion in just a minute. This episode of The Everyday Innovator is brought to you by Product Innovation Educators, your one place for online training to make the move from product manager to product master. When you enroll in one of our online courses, it's like having Chad McAllister as your personal coach. In each course, you get video lessons, added resources, and a private community for collaboration with other product managers and innovators. And, of course, you get direct access to Chad, who will answer your questions and get you heading in the right direction. Past students tell us the concepts, practices, and tools are valuable, but the real benefits they gain are being more confident, increasing their influence in their organization, and generating greater success for themselves and their company. There are four levels of training to become a product master. Find your level now. Get started by going to theeverydayinnovator.com forward slash master. You're one place to become a product master. Theeverydayinnovator.com forward slash master. Don't wait. Get started now. So first build, big success. And now you've expanded some notion of this first build concept of what worked there to something called Giddy. And I don't know anything about Giddy. And we had the opportunity to meet when I visited First Build over the summer, saw the facility, got to play in the makerspace 
uh, with my kids and uh, make some stuff there, which was great. And you said, Chad, there's this thing coming up I can't tell you about yet, but we're going to open up what we've been doing here in a bigger way. So this must be giddy, and I, I want to hear about this thing. Yeah, great. So you really can't talk about Giddy without telling the story of how First Build existed. Um, Giddy is really phase two in what we think will be um, a long journey. Um, so we've been on this journey to create what Giddy is for about four years when we, we started it, when we started First Build. And what we found with First Build was that we had enough success that we started to have a bunch of inbound interest in how to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, not only from the the people who are making things ma- on the kind of on the maker side, but also from Fortune, sure, other companies who are coming in and asking us, "How are you having such success with crowdfunding?" That doesn't seem like something that GE would do. Mm-hmm. So, uh, for the most part, when those people would come in, we would kind of we would we would entertain them, we would tell them the story that I just told you, but we would say, "There's not much else we can do for you because we're busy with our crowdfunding campaigns and all that stuff." And we got to the point with uh, first build where it was stable and established and it's doing the thing that it's designed to do. And we decided there's whenever you've got inbound interest, you use the first thing you think is how can I turn this into an opportunity? Um, so what will, what Giddy will be doing is actually partnering up with uh, other companies to help them build their own maker spaces, their own micro factories. And also we operate a software platform that will allow any company, any entrepreneur, any person who wants to come up with a great product innovation idea, get it out into the marketplace. And uh, effectively, what we do is connect you with creative product developers to help you come up with, conceive and develop the best next generation of of new products. So this sounds like first build in a box. If I'm at a company, which is probably a larger company that's interested in trying to create some kind of uh, innovation incubator, and I want to, in some sense, replicate what First Build did in a way that makes sense for our organization. This helps me get that done. Every company that I've spoken to in the First Build context has always said, we have a whole bunch of ideas that we don't quite know what to do with. Uh, companies are really good at uh, maintaining the, the status quo and, mm-hmm. and building upon the status quo, right? So that's how, that's the steady march that usually happens that generally, you know, tends to lead to significant growth in businesses and things. Mm-hmm. What they tend to struggle with is once they've figured out what their status quo is, they kind of stick to that, con- that convergent path that they've created and it's hard for them to diverge from there. And so what we've decided is we're, we can create a, a place where companies with these divergent ideas can come diverge for a little while until they find another line uh, of value that they can add to their portfolio. And then we can help them take it forward. Okay. Tell us some details about that. Is, is this a physical place to come to and, and make use of for a while? And Giddy, Giddy is a software platform. It connects, okay. it connects the creative product development community with companies that are looking for new product ideas, new uh, product concepts, I should say. Okay, so, so there's not a first build giddy version down the street for companies to make use of. Our goal is actually to do a, a bit of each, but um, without getting into too much detail, because it's, it's more than we need to, um, uh, we, we will help companies do any of the above. Okay. If there's a company that needs to set up a micro factory, we can certainly get into that space too. Okay. Dive in just a little bit more on Giddy. So this is a software platform that is 
I assume replicating part of what the first build community does, which is you know, a place where anyone can go submit an idea. You have contests that go on periodically where people can respond to a contest and help generate ideas, design you know, some aspect of a product, and kind of see how the, the crowd contributes to an idea and, and finally you know, select something that you guys might want to build. And I may not have characterized all that right. So t- tell us what the Kitty, the Kitty platform does. Yeah. So what we do right now is very simple. So we're in, we're a, a six month old startup that's um, done a lot. We've put our platform through a bunch of stress testing, but as a startup, we understand that the most important thing we can do is focus on providing the, the most concrete value that we can in the short term. So what we found at first build was the most valuable interaction that we had with users of the co-create, the first build co-create platform was when we would issue a challenge to the community to create a new product concept. So here's what that looks like. Um, I'll give you the, the uh, example of the Opal Nugget Ice Maker. So the backstory is, I'll tell it backwards, Opal Nugget Ice Maker was a project that we launched on Indiegogo and ended up doing about $3 million on Indiegogo. It was like a top 10 funded of all time hardware product on Indiegogo and then has gone on to make over... I don't even know what they've racked up over 10 million, much more than $10 million in sales um, since then. And really big success. I think the thing that most people don't really know when they dig into that story is we started the Opal Nugget Ice Maker product development about 120 days before we launched the crowdfunding campaign. Um, So that's a pretty quick turnaround Mm -hmm. for a really successful product launch. In fact, I don't know, this probably beats some sort of a record. Um, and there's really only way that one way that we could have had that success. And the way that we did it was we launched a, a design challenge to our creative community to say, listen, there's some interest. We've heard a lot of interest around creating nugget ice. I should stop and explain that for a second. Nugget ice is a special kind of ice that is basically, imagine you take a bunch of snowflakes and you pack them together really, really hard. So it's crunchy, but it's also really, really, it's soft. People call it soft ice. People call it the good ice. Very popular in like Texas and the Southeast, some, somewhat unknown in the Northeast and the Northwest. But there's a there's an avid population of people who really, really love the, the product. Including my wife, which is why I backed the campaign. Yeah. There was some interest in our community around Nugget Ice. People were saying there was an idea around it. We said, what if we, what if we say we're going to launch a crowdfunding campaign in 90 days? And we tell people to, we ask people, what should a countertop nugget ice maker look like? So basically we said, here's what we know. We want to make 25 pounds of ice a day. We want it to hold up to three pounds, at least three pounds of ice. And we want it to sit on the countertop. And that was literally the spec that we put out in front of the community. And then we said, in three weeks, we want to see what you come up with. Mm-hmm. If you win, you'll get a certain amount. I can't remember what the prize money was. And so we end up with about 40 different entries at the end of it. And we the novel, the, the best concept was actually really, really interesting. So one of the challenges that we had around creating an ice maker was there wasn't a lot of variety out there. And it was it's hard to conceive of something that could be different. So if you go to Amazon.com right now and you look at the ice makers that are available on there, you'll see about 40 different models and 39 of them look the same and one of them looks different. Um, the Opal Nugget Ice Maker. And so the whole idea behind the ice maker was it had this like flip up lid and then there's like a little basket that you could take out. But it was really kind of a not a great design, particularly for a countertop model, because if it sits underneath your cabinets, you can't flip up the top. So the the novel design that we got back was uh, made by um, 
uh, a guy from our community who's also from Mexico. And it was a beautiful design. But interestingly, what he'd come up with was having a pitcher that sits on the front that kind of docks on the front of the unit. And then it has a clear front so you can see the ice as it's filling up. You always know how much ice is in there. But also it's a showcase, which is really important for the brand of the Opal Nugget Ice Maker. Um, because you can actually see that that type of ice and then people come into your home and they see the ice and they're like, that's the ice I like. So it, it helps kind of diffuse the the story about the Opal Nugget Ice Maker out there as well as just being a really beautiful showpiece. Um, and so our designers looked at that and they instantly fell in love with it. They said, this is the right way to go. So then the next step of that, three weeks after launching the challenge, our our engineer and our designer kind of get together and they talk to the guy who developed the product and they eventually can converge on a solution that ends up looking like the open legged ice maker you see today. And that whole thing probably from start to first prototype from start of the challenge to first prototype, I imagine was about six to eight weeks. Uh, we took some, I, I actually literally took the first prototype they built up to New York city uh, and showed it around to the press and they took a bunch of pictures of it. We made a video of it. And then we put it up on Indiegogo a month or so later. Mm-hmm. And then the rest is history. Uh, so the way that we see this working for other companies is effectively the same thing that we've done, that we've seen be successful time and time again, particularly when we've run crowdfunded products. You've got an idea. You give a general constraint, some general constraints around it, but don't constrain the creativity out of it. Mm-hmm. And then... What our community can do for you is provide the divergence that's required before you start to converge on a final design. So one of the that most companies really struggle with is getting enough creative um, concepts up front because usually you've got a limited team of industrial designers and engineers who are working on a project up front and they've got a deadline. And so companies have this tendency to converge to try and get to the solution as quickly as possible. And we can still do that. But you, the best solutions don't come by converging quickly. The best con- solutions come through divergent thinking and then convergent thinking. And so that's really what the Giddy community is all about. Um, and so w- effectively, what we would do to answer your question now in the shortest way possible is you come to us with a problem. Uh, we help you write a design brief that fits with the capabilities of our community. We'll um, adjudicate the challenge. You'll select a winner and then the designs that come out the other end are things that you can take forward to, to uh, production to your next step. Okay. So this isn't just the software capability. This is a platform for getting ideas created, solving challenges and coming up with designs. You're, you're bringing your community that already exists and those that are being added to it all the time, because we just like creating things. There's people wanting to do this. You're bringing that as part of the, the giddy capability. Exactly. That's correct. Okay. And that's a big difference. You know, th- there's other, kind of idea generation systems that companies use to you know, generate, keep track yes. of ideas, manage them. But the problem is you have to get the people into them in the first place and manage them effectively. And anyone that has tried that, the management part of it is, can become a nightmare. Yeah. And I think we've done an appraisal of a whole bunch of different ones, obviously just kind of competitive intelligence early on. And I think what we found is that, uh, a lot of them are really, really nonspecific, right? It's just, mm-hmm. you could pick any idea anywhere. Right. And my experience is that the companies that are really successful at this crowdsourcing model uh, have pretty specific use cases for their software. And the ones that don't tend to not be quite as useful. Yep. And having the power of the community already built in, that's huge. There's people that 
a company can start using Giddy now and have people available to generate ideas and solve challenges. Yep. Okay. Who's the likely candidate to, as a as a individual, let's say, designer engineer that is interested in making new stuff? Is Giddy a place for me to just go contribute? And on the other side of that, is this kind of the medium to large company looking for uh, new ideas and a, a platform to help them? So we have uh, we have users across the spectrum um, of varying experience levels and across the uh, different industries. So I'll talk about two different type, two different archetypes. Um, these are based on real people. So one of the one of the guys I can think of that I was speaking to about two weeks ago is a biomedical engineer. He's got 15 years of experience, and he's um, he's currently works for a large corporation, but has started had a few ventures that he's worked on and ultimately decided I like the large corporation space because it provides stability for my family but I also like to mess around in in the space in the innovation space and his basic reason for participating in giddy was he's got all sorts of ideas and he doesn't really have the capacity right. to do anything else with them so giddy's a place for him to participate and, and think about new things and meet other new people who are doing interesting new things um, so an, another archetype would be a, an industrial designer who say is three years into their career and, um, has gotten to the point of like, they, they got their first job, they loved it. And now they're a little bit disenchanted and they're like, boy, I, I wish I wasn't just designing, um, uh, I don't know, maybe, uh, buttons for, uh, jackets or whatever they might be designing. Um, that's, that's a really bad example. <laughs> yeah. But to move outside of their domain and get to explore some other things and exploring other new ideas. So both of those kind of represent pr pretty typical participants on Giddy. So yeah, I, I think that answers the question. Yeah. And there's a dual value chain here, right? So it's the contributors you just described. And then it's the, the actual customers, the medium or large businesses, I assume that are wanting to take advantage of this platform. Yeah, so I'll talk about the other side. Um, initially, you know, you look at the some of these uh, some of the other platforms that are out there, and honestly, I think they're they're considering the best customer to be the one that has the most money and uh, could potentially be a multi million dollar contract. And we're not shying away from that. We that is part of our story, and that's what we will do. But there is a huge opportunity in this space to make innovation accessible. To the rest of us, those who, so I've I've had no less than a dozen conversations with entrepreneurs who are either going to Kickstarter or Indiegogo, or who are like trying to figure out how to get how to make their way through this tortuous path to get toward getting their product into the marketplace, and Giddy is really a space for them. So they've got super limited resources, and um, being able to to team up with really passionate, creative people um, is a really valuable thing for them. And so we've got what, effectively what we've done, and we haven't really announced it yet, but um, we, there will be different tiers of participation from the sponsor level. So if you're an innovation sponsor, that would be a company or an entrepreneur. There, there are going to be different kind of packages for the starting up the entrepreneur all the way up to the Fortune 500. Awesome. So it really goes across the range. You you have an idea, you're an entrepreneur, you're a large Fortune 100, you you have a solution. Where do people go find out about more information about Giddy? And if they are interested in signing up to be a contributor? And the best place to go is giddy.io. And uh, there's a lot of information on there. Okay. Giddy.io. 
we're, we're a, a mobile first company. So I would say that uh, you, you should really just go to the app store or the Google play store and type in Giddy. And uh, I think our, our app store optimization has got us to the top uh, for the Giddy keyword on the app, Apple app store. Hopefully by the time this airs, we will also be in the top spot on the Google play store. Excellent. So go, go get the app and can start playing around with Giddy and contributing ideas if uh, people are interested in that. And as listeners know, I love a good innovation quote. Do you have one for us? Yeah, this is by Kevin Kelly. He said it back in 1999. I think it was probably uh, he foresaw the future when he wrote it uh, because I recently checked his Twitter feed and he said, this is still true even, what, 7, 16, 17, 18 years later. Mm-hmm. And the, the words of it are, wealth is not gained by perfecting the known, but by imperfectly seizing the unknown. And the reason why I like that is because it goes to the crux of what's the difference between optimization and innovation. So what a lot of companies have been set up for is optimization, taking a system that they understand and making it better and better and better and better. It's a Toyota production system, right? How do you get continuously better? And uh, what what innovation really is, the, the core of it, is figuring out what exists at the edges and where the, where there could be value that hasn't yet been realized, but yet can be kind of grabbed and turned into something that could be valuable. And anytime you do that, you're going to be doing it very imperfectly. It's going to be, it's fraught with complexity, difficulty, failure. Um, those things are part of that process. But that imperfection that you've, that imperfect process that you're using to grasp the unknown can ultimately become the next thing that converges to a real, a real solution for other people. So it really describes, I think, the journey that First Build and Giddy have been on for the last four years. And it describes the journey that I think all of us should embrace and grasp if we want to be innovative product developers. Yeah, it's an excellent fit for the experience you've had there. And, and this tension between, uh, as you shared before, and some of the work that Clayton Christensen talks about, that organizations are optimized to manage operations and that they tend to not be wired to accept innovations. And what First Build has done is a great way to help GE Appliance change that. And, you know, you talk about the, you know, the five percent maybe go through, through first build. And now Giddy is a platform to help anyone change that. I appreciate you sharing the quote and also what you are doing with Giddy. And I look forward to hearing uh, the, about the future endeavors there. I appreciate you giving us the opportunity to talk about it. And I'm sure we'll chat again in the future. Thanks so much, Taylor. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Find the summary of the discussion with Taylor at the everyday innovator.com slash one six one. Keep innovating. Thank you for listening to The Everyday Innovator, which teaches product managers to become product masters. For more resources, please visit our blog at theeverydayinnovator.com.